If Australia is known for anything, the sunshine has got to be high up that list, right? And yet, when it comes to renewable power like solar power, there's a lot of questions. Like, how much can it really save you on power bills? And when is it most useful? And then there's huge questions around the future. When are we going to get batteries for our homes? Or what does it mean for the power grid and reliability? And could it even power electric cars? You know what? There's a lot of questions. So let's do some answers. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to a solar episode of Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. We are focusing all on solar and our guests this week are Professor Renata Egan from the Australian Centre of Advanced Photovoltaics. One day, Renata, I will get that right. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're also joined by Amy Bainbridge, uh, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter. Thanks so much for being here, Amy. Absolute pleasure, Mark. Is the sun shining where you are currently? It's not. I'm not very happy about it. Well, that's it. I quit then. I quit in protest. Um, Renata, can I just start with you? Where did the interest in solar begin for you? For me, um, well, I'd studied science and um, had some fairly deep learning in, in science, gone and done a PhD, and I really wanted basically to use my powers for good. So I wanted to be able to apply what I had learnt um, to make a difference in the world. And this was back in 1995 when the cost of solar was of the order of $20 a watt and now it's down to 20 cents a watt. So I've joined that journey. Uh, that's for the, the, the solar panels themselves. I've, I've been part of that journey all the way down as the prices have plummeted and it's made solar the most cost-effective form of new energy generation. Hmm. And Amy, right now there's obviously lots of people listening to this that either have or are considering getting solar on things like their houses, for example, where are we at? Just give me a bit of a picture of like where we're roughly at with with solar take up around Australia at the moment. Well, I think Renata would probably um, agree with me that we really are in the midst of a revolution when it comes to rooftop solar. And even last year during the COVID-19 pandemic, when installations of solar were impacted, it's still been an incredibly strong year for rooftop solar installations, even with those challenges. At the moment, you know, we're edging up towards three million households in Australia uh, having solar panels on their roofs. It's the highest uptake in the world. So we really are leading the charge. It has become a real success story for many people and for the industry here. Why do you think that is, Renata? Um, We have some of the cheapest installs in the world because we've got such a lean and efficient system now. We also have a real familiarity with the sun. You know, Australians love the sun. They associate the, the country with sunshine. Uh, and we have had relatively high electricity prices, or the prices are coming down. So people have wanted some ownership of the their electricity price problem. Uh, and I think that there's also some there's a real passion in Australia by Australians for having an impact on changing energy consumption and improving the climate change situation for future generations. And there's a little bit of frustration with central leadership and a desire to take some ownership themselves. So that people are investing, councils are investing, state governments are investing because there's a lack of sort of central coordination. In your dealings with consumers, uh, Amy, would that ring true? Is, is that one of the driving factors that you've noticed with consumers? Oh, massively. So, I mean, only, I guess, five or six years ago, um, I was, a you know, freshly into the role as consumer affairs reporter and was reporting all the time on frustrations with high electricity bills. I mean, the cost of electricity really was becoming unaffordable for so many Australians. 
there's so there's this shift people wanting to take ownership that that sort of Australian attitude of uh, getting sick of being dictated to by big businesses and not having enough power as a consumer I think that's part of it but if you talk to a lot of people about their motivations about getting solar on the roof it's not just economic it's a lot driven as well by having an environmental conscience um, wanting to do something good for the environment I think a lot of the state subsidy programs have been hugely successful almost too successful in that they've had to uh, limit uh, uptake at times of people that can get uh, solar rebates and subsidies but yeah it's partly taking ownership back of your own needs I guess and wanting to cut bills and we are seeing power bills going down and partly that is attributable not just to people who have rooftop solar but the broader renewables across the energy network means the wholesale price of electricity is now going down it started going down uh, in the middle of last year and that really does show I think uh, the impact right across the network for people, not just for people who have the panels on their roofs. Renata, what is driving that price down? Is it just manufacturing costs or is there something else that's meant that it has suddenly become massively much more affordable for so many people? It's been a long, slow decline in pricing for the hardware. In fact, most of those changes happened probably five years ago, but then there's also been an awareness opportunity that we've been we've been trying to raise and tell people that it's the lowest cost form of electricity. So it takes a little while for people to, to actually really believe it because often people will get have got a quote two or three years ago and if you went and got the same quote now, it would be two-thirds of the price of what it was a couple of years ago. So as an example, um, in 2008, I put solar on my roof and I put one kilowatt of solar on and it cost me $10,000. You could now put 10 kilowatts on for $10,000. So wow. it's in that time frame, 12, in 12 years, the price of solar has dropped to 10% of what it was. 12 years ago. So it's it's actually just even believing that that, has, that that change is so rapid and staying current with the, the data and the numbers. That's one of our biggest challenges is keep, keeping people aware of the opportunity. Amy, you got solar put on your house about six years ago. What are the biggest lessons you took away from that experience? Well, yeah, so that was our first solar system at a, a home that we previously lived at. So yeah, that was five or six years ago. I mean, I guess at the time, you know, we had, we spoke to three different companies. We got three different messages about the size of the system we needed. Perhaps we're more engaged consumers than most, but uh, at the time, you know, we had one child with with another on the way and we were told that maybe we should look at our growing energy needs rather than our current energy needs. So one uh, company said, here you go for a whiz-bang massive system. One said, look, let's go for a system that caters to your growing needs. And one basically said, just get a system for what you need right now. So we went the mid-range. Um, we since moved to a, a new house oh, a couple of years ago and only recently got panels again. Um, I was just staggered by the the cost difference. We've got a bigger system now. We've paid less than what we did um, five or six years ago. It's just been such a rapid change. Um, secondly, and Renata is well familiar with this, I mean, five or six years ago, you might have had panels on your roofs, but it was only the real innovators that would offer some sort of consumer monitoring mechanism with that. This time around, you know, you download an app to your phone, you can monitor your output and usage, you can become a lot more engaged with what is actually happening. And then the extension for that and where all this is heading is a lot of people now are talking about the fact that consumers themselves will be able to trade 
energy, uh, depending on how, I guess, engaged you want to be with the market, or you might even have someone do that on your behalf. So things are moving really rapidly and it is pretty exciting uh, where it might go next. Are there limitations to to the technology that you weren't expecting, like, you know, parts of the day where it's producing more or less than you expected. I, I, in terms of that lived experience, were there things about it that you, you weren't expecting? What it has done for us is change our time of use type scenario. So for example, are you really going to put a dishwasher on at night when your panels aren't producing? We don't have a battery. So this is obviously just a scenario for us. But I guess the whole point has been that you can look at your usage and your peak usage. And previously, we might have been beholden to peak and off-peak charges from your electricity company. Um, The idea now is that you change your behaviour to put on, you know, heavier loads at times when uh, your panels are really producing optimally. And the fact that you can see that on the app and you can go, okay, now is a good time to do, you know, put the washing machine on, the dishwasher, that kind of thing. Now is a good time to use that energy, knowing that we can't save that energy and disperse it later on from a battery because we don't have that capability yet. Okay. Renata, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions, at least in terms of the technology as it currently exists out there for people to, to put on their, their homes? What would you say the biggest misconceptions that people have about uh, solar power? The biggest hurdles for people putting solar on are not knowing how to start, like not knowing who to have the first conversation with. Uh, there are a couple of companies out there who'll do online quote comparison, which will help you. Uh, and the other thing is to, you know, ask your, your neighbours and friends who've got solar, you know, how it's worked for them and who did the installs for them. There is industry associations who will point you in the right direction. The other thing is, as Amy pointed out, is that the people typically only buy a solar installation once, sometimes once in their lifetime, otherwise maybe a couple of times, and it moves so quickly and then the familiarity with the language around solar is challenging for a lot of people. And then they'll get three quotes and those three quotes will be quite different. So they won't actually even be able to compare the three different values or the, the, the information they're given. So those are the, some of the big challenges. A lot of local councils now offer a service where they'll help you through the process so that to help you with the language and to help with the ideas around it. And then there are, I would, yeah, you can go to lots of online sources for information. A similar question to what I asked Amy, which is uh, what are the limitations of it at the moment out there in the market? Uh, so there are very few. Uh, at the moment, actually, as Amy pointed out earlier, last year was a boom, bumper year. There were 300,000 installations went in last year, uh, which is, you know, an increase on previous years. The, the installers are actually crazy busy at the moment. So even getting an installer's attention is hard work at the moment. Awareness of, of how to make a choice around what to install, that's a challenge. Uh, who to ask and awareness around the pricing. Otherwise, there are um, some of the grid operators in the different states are now facing issues with having too much solar on the grid. So and what does that mean? What's that going to mean for those those operators? For the grid operators, it makes it really hard to keep. They have to keep the grid uh, operating within a certain window of conditions, particularly around what voltage and current um, and frequency, which are you know factors that keep the grid stable. Um, it's their job to keep that in a particular operating window. And two things happened during the course of the day. It used to be that in the evenings, the, when everybody got home and they all turned their air conditioners on and their, and their ovens on, um, the grid was challenged by the excess demand on the grid. And now what you also have is in the middle of the day, you have excess supply. So you can imagine that that window that they have to operate in, with, so in the middle of the day when the sun is shining and there's lots of solar coming into the grid, they have more energy than they know what to do with. 
Right. And then in the evenings when everybody comes and turns everything on, they have not enough. So they actually, they're really struggling with that, you know, keeping that balance right. And it's a challenge. Fortunately, as Amy mentioned, the, uh, a lot of systems now come with some real smarts around monitoring and analytics and communications. So in South Australia, they're now requiring new installs to have a grid communications piece so that they can actually trim back the generation when there's too much. Now, it doesn't happen very often and it's not going to have a huge impact on people, but it means that they can allow more and more people to put power on and still maintain a stable grid. So that's, people, there's a lot of, there's been a bit of negative press around it, but it's actually, we have to go this way to allow us to have more and more solar on the grid. The, uh, Amy mentioned the um, interactions with the, uh, with consumers with the grid. More and more, we're going to be asked to use our, heat our hot water in the middle of the day, run our pool pumps in the middle of the day, charge our electric vehicles in the middle of the day. When solar, uh, there's surplus solar, and in fact, energy is nearly free. Interesting. The, the the thing you were saying earlier about your behaviour, Amy, I mean, are there other forms of behaviour that you've changed with this knowledge of, of how your power is being generated on your house? Oh, look, I guess, I mean, we kind of went through the whole having LED lights and things like that. So I guess really it's just like the big, the big hit appliances, right, that suck down a lot of energy. So that's what you kind of think about. I mean, there's things like your, your fridge and the like that's just going to keep running all the time. There's no question around changing behaviours like that. But, yeah, it's really ma- mainly the big appliances like the washing machine and, and the dishwasher that you would think about when you would use it and when's a good time to use it. Like we actually actively discuss that now. And I think that's that points to a massive shift more broadly in consumer behaviour and as Renata pointed out, I mean, that's going to have benefits down the line for the networks managing peak load times that they will be able to communicate with their customers. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, other people might have bigger power usage, you know, you might have a pool pump or something like that. And then, you know, you can make some decisions around when you're going to use that high energy device to, to best suit the needs that you have. And also when it comes down to it, get you the cheapest power bill. I mean, Mm. if you're going to be generating all this solar, there's no sense in then buying it back in the evening when you have to pay for energy. It's not really, there's no, there's no point to that. You may as well make the most of your own system. You really are becoming your own little generator. I will say it did become my excuse for not running the dishwasher at night and waiting till the next morning. (laughs) My wife's like, it it stinks. I'm like, yes, but think of the energy saving. (laughs) Uh, You are listening to the voices of Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter and Professor Renata Egan from UNSW, uh, the Australian Centre for Advanced Focus. Photovoltaics. Mark Fennell is my name and this is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We are talking about solar power. And just like focusing in on the house for a little bit longer here, um, Renata, how much of a difference will home-based batteries make to these issues that we're talking about? Are are they sort of the panacea to to deal with moderating these fluctuations in power supply and demand? Uh, They absolutely will be. Um, We're just in the beginning of the home battery journey. Uh, in the same way that probably 10 years ago we were at the beginning of the solar home solar journey. Uh, the price of batteries will continue to fall. The early adopters now are testing the systems and enjoying what they've got, but they've paid a premium for that. Uh, and But in, in, in years to come, in the, in, in the near future, because the price of these things changes so rapidly, it will be make an awful lot of sense for people to have both solar on their roof and a battery and then you'll again you need some more you need the smarts you need the monitoring you need the information that tells you when you're using and and how best to use 
the power that you generated. The batteries will make a huge difference and it'll make a difference to the grid as well because that will solve the problem with there being excess solar in the middle of the day when it's being diverted to a battery. And then I'd have to go back to turning on my dishwasher at night again like the old days. Um, Amy, if you, <laughs> if, uh, if a battery was affordable, and right now they are very, very expensive, if it was affordable, is that something you would do? Absolutely. But I think, I mean, we have been kind of talking about the affordability of batteries um, for the last couple of years, and it's always been this, you know, the technology is changing so quickly. When's it going to reach that tipping point that actually it is affordable? I mean, for us at the moment, no, it's not. Um, but this is going to be such an interesting space over the next decade. This is going to change rapidly. And I think we also need to factor into the equation electric vehicles and how they might fit into the home network as well and how they can potentially act as a battery possibly down the track as well. But certainly charging your electric vehicle from home, that's going to be something, an area of innovation that's that's we're going to see change a lot over the next little while. Renata, you are... Uh across the very bleeding edge of solar technology. And I'm going to ask you an extremely professional grown-up question here. What's the coolest thing you're seeing solar being used for right now? The thing you look at and just go, that's awesome. That's sci-fi. Yeah, well, so it's it would be solar integrated into electric vehicles. So they're already building vehicles uh, where there's a solar basically in the equivalent of the sunroof. Uh, they're doing tests on sit on vehicles that are covered in solar panels to work out if you had in the right conditions, how far can you drive if you literally just leave the car parked in the sun? Uh, and, you know, the numbers are looking like 30 to 50 kilometres a day, which is most is that's actually what most people drive, uh, you know, to and from work, up to the shops, down to the school. Uh, that's That's actually all you need. Uh, so there will be a case of optimising the, the electric vehicles, so they need to be lighter and uh, probably smaller, but to get more range. But that's actually got to be the coolest at the moment. <laughs> and you'd also and never I want see... to park in a parking bay again in a, in a parking <laughs> yeah, that's block right. again. Yeah, no, it'll, yeah, yes. I mean, there will also there'll always be a, a battery bag, you know, a plug-in um, option for these things. But you can literally imagine you just cut out the middleman is that the car is charging itself um, all day every day. Uh, so that's that's one of the coolest things, and that's happening. Some of it's happening at the University of New South Wales, where we're doing actually tests with a with a solar detector on the top of a car and driving it around, and you know, crunching the numbers to see how much, how far in Australia under these conditions, you could um, you could drive your car. That's kind of feel like uh, Australia yeah, was designed for solar power, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely does. Well, certainly, though, I mean, most of us live in cities and drive around cities. We have this vision of, of, you know, always wanting to be able to drive four hours out bush, but very few of us actually do it on a regular basis. So for the, for the majority of our, our commuting, uh, an electric vehicle with some solar power is going to, will be a, a really feasible solution. So we see the solar modules that we see, that we put in panels, the solar panels that people are putting on the roofs now, as a bit like the Nokia phone of the 1990s, sort of functional, <laughs> uh, you know, does the job, but it's, they all look sort of, you know, a little clunky. They're all about the same. Um, so we see the next 10 years as an opportunity to actually really transform that so that we can have solar everywhere, but it looks different. So it'll be, you know, the, so the flexible solar panels that fit around curved surfaces. There's the idea of building integrated photovoltaic, so you put solar on uh, shades of buildings or uh, partial windows. Um, and then there's the concept of solar paint, 
which is takes you to the idea that you can put it everywhere. It's not an actual paint that you can paint on and plug, you know, put a clip on either side. Uh, but it's the concept, it's the, the vision of being able to cover all the surfaces with solar. That's what we're really excited about. Um, Amy, I'm going to put the cool question to you too in a minute, but I did just want to ask, Renata, as you were mentioning it there, it's the super thin materials and, and solar paint, how far away are we from actually being able to do some of that stuff? So it's it's possible now. It's just not cost-effective. So it's there, the CSRO in um, Melbourne have... Uh, a, um, a printable solar cell, which they print on a plastic film, uh, and it can be rolled out. But it's at the moment it's not a, a, a cost-competitive option. Uh, there's a technology of, which is the flexible sort of. It looks like the solar panel that we know now, but it's unframed and it's on a sort of flexible substrate, uh, which goes around curves around surfaces. Um, that's available now, and it's that's about a, twice the price of the standard module. So it's actually really close to being affordable. And then the real, the real long-term blue sky stuff is, yeah, is, is the, you know, the paint option um, where you, but the, and that's the kind of thing that inspires people. The reality of it um, happening is probably a long way off. Uh, yeah. How, sorry, now I'm, I'm <laughs> like, I'm, my imagination's completely fixed, transfixed on it now. So, so when mm -hmm. we say not cost effective, like how much is a can of paint? <laughs> Oh, well, that's the point. It's it's not a can of paint. It's it, it, I mean, a can of paint is cheap, but a can of paint that well, a paintable or printable <laughs> solar technology. What you have to do the challenge with solar and the white the reason why the panels that you see today are so cost effective is that silicon is one of the most abundant elements on the earth, and it's sandwiched between a piece of glass and a piece of plastic. It's and that that sandwich is what keeps it lasting in the field for twenty twenty five years. And that's what makes it cost effective. It's cheap and you can make it work for 25 years. So you have to do the same thing with the thin film stuff. You have to make it, it has to be a cost effective material set. And some of the thin films are really challenging in that space. And you have to actually then sort of sandwich it between two things that keep it, that protect it from the environment for as, as long as you want it to run for. Mm. And that's that balance, the, the cost of the materials and the lifetime of the product. What I don't want to see is disposable renewables. does seem what to defeat to the do. entire concept, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So what we, <laughs> people are really working on the flexible or thin film or paintable, however you want to call it, panels that have or um, technology that has a long lifetime. And for you, Amy, um, looking at what's coming down the pipeline and stuff that you've seen, what interests you, what excites you? Yeah, I think, you know, making solar more accessible to the broader community, not just people who own their own homes. So there's a lot of exciting work in that space, looking at um, people who are renters being able to apply um, to their landlords to get uh, on some sort of solar scheme. So incentivising landlords to put solar on rooftops. That's one thing. Um, one story we did late last year was uh, for our 7.30 program was in bushfire affected communities and it was looking at um, extreme weather events and how they impact the energy grid and what solutions are, come, are being come up with uh, to, to make sure rural and remote communities can stay connected more reliably in the future as we face increasing extreme weather events. And the energy networks told us that they are, you know, planning. I mean, for example, in New South Wales, one of the energy networks is planning uh, something like 1,500 standalone power systems. So we're talking there about 
having mini generation systems, which includes solar panels and a battery and a backup generator in rural and remote areas, in, in areas where it doesn't really make sense to keep maintaining these long, skinny poles and wire networks, um, where it does cost a lot of money and that cost is passed on to consumers across the board, not just in that area. Mm. So we saw a lot of innovation happening where, uh, for example, after the New South Wales bushfires of uh, the previous summer, um, people that had been cut off during those fires, they now have a standalone power system that might service a handful of properties. Uh, a similar, although not exactly the same, situation in Malakuta, which is in far eastern Victoria, a town that's connected by, you know, a single line to the grid and they've suffered over the years many, many disruptions. They've now got this system that can kick in if the line is disrupted in any way and that could be just something like a, a piece of bark falling on a, a transmission line or the like, um, that this system will will kick in and provide uh, energy for up to three days while any faults are, co or are corrected. Uh, and also in Malakudu, they've got a, a decent system on the top of their community centre. You know, there's a lot of community projects that are happening and I think this is really impressive and speaks to, you know, a lot of smart people that are super motivated and achieving really ex extremely interesting and uh, cutting-edge things at the moment. I think it is a really exciting time. But one of the interesting things I pick up from what you're saying there and also the earlier discussion around putting things on houses and um, putting solar panels on houses and batteries is that it strikes me that the, the power grid or the power infrastructure of the future is actually going to look quite a fair bit more decentralised than than the power grid of today. Is that a would, does that ring true to you? Does that sound reasonable, Amy? Yes, and there is going to be um, a lot of investment in the transmission networks over the next you know decade or so. I mean, one thing that's happening in New South Wales is that there are some large scale renewable projects coming online, but they are being built in areas where the transmission is already quite good. So we're not going to double up on costs and build new transmission systems. But yes, I think overall, we are seeing uh, the changing face of the energy grid. I mean, you know, a lot of our grids, the, the infrastructure was built in the 1970s. It's getting old. It becomes uh, very expensive to maintain. So the, the networks themselves are looking for other solutions. And on top of that, um, you've got all this rooftop solar, which is really is um, changing how things look out there. And and yes, much less rely, rely, reliance on major generation because you've got all of this other generation coming from rooftops. Does that ring true to you, uh, Professor Renata? Yeah, absolutely it does. I think it's the last 10, 15 years of, of um, solar technology development has been exciting. The next 10 or 15 years of energy integration is going to be amazing. Um, there's, we're going to see so much transformation in the way that telecommunications changed between 2000 and now with the, you know, the, the iPhone and all the, the phone technologies. We're going to see energy change the same way. Um, and it's actually a really, it's, there are going to be so many opportunities um, and we need so many people on the journey. So there's clearly engineering opportunities, but we need, you know, we need consumer advocates. We need um, business finance. We need investment decision-making. We need all sorts of different skills and uh, knowledge brought to the energy industry to really bring this about and bring it about fast. All right. Professor Renata Egan, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Professor Renata Egan is from UNSW's Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. I said it without stumbling over it. That's my achievement of the day. And <laughs> Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter, thank you so much for coming and doing uh, Download This Show. It was a real honour to have you on the show. 
Yeah, it was really great. Um, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, thank you. And, and Amy again as well. That was great. <laughs> great. All right. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Uh, if you enjoyed this, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse us on and I will catch you next week. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to Download This Show. Listener.